Hi, everybody. Welcome to a quality podcast, season three. It's hard to believe that we've already spent a year together. And for all of you that have been able to join us on this journey, thank you so much for joining us. We hope that this podcast can add real value to the way that you conduct your business in the quality space, be that lean, Six Sigma, continuous improvement of all types. We are here to serve you, to make your stories known, and hopefully help you out in your pursuit of excellence. If you have any recommendations for the show, any burning questions or suggestions for improvement, please send me an email, john at johnthackerjr.com, and let me know. We'd love to get some feedback for you. Thank you for joining us, and please enjoy the episode. No one listens to me, and I've said this before, but not, nothing happens. And, and I feel so, uh, you know, painful because of that, because I'm thinking it's not necessarily adopting all the ideas that someone says, because you can't, but giving them feedback, the reason why, to give them feedback. And that's why I'm also passionate in making sure that, that we look after the frontline people and we communicate well with them. everybody to a quality podcast we are thrilled this week to have with us paul dean thunder from down under to talk with us about lead uh paul is the senior business improvement lead for australia post uh not the serial company those are the people that deliver mail and packages so paul welcome to the show thanks guys good to be here well we're thrilled to have you here. We appreciate you working with the time differential and all of that. For those of you that don't know, Paul is from the part of the world where they walk upside down. So that's really cool. It's just like Texas, but it's upside down. I was just waiting to love that comment out. <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Paul, one of the things that um, we found so attractive is you're online consistently engaging and you're always throwing pictures out there of people doing the work and helping yeah. them to get results. And really that's the topic that we came up with for today is frontline engagement in change as you pursue continuous improvement. So we're thrilled. I think this is going to add real value uh, to our audience. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, you know, your journey, what you're up to these days? Sure. Sure. Well, thanks, John. Uh, I think over the last 10, maybe 12 years, I've been formally involved in Lean. So up until that time, a uh, chemical engineer by profession. So I spent a lot of time uh, actually either operations management or plant management of industrial plants from a, a range of industries. And interesting, uh, back in, I think it was like the, the mid-2000s, I was working for a company called Belden Cables, which you guys would be familiar with. Um, North American large cable organization. And they actually wanted to do uh, Six Sigma black belts in every plant across the, the globe. And I think they had something like 40 something plants, uh, quite a few in North America, obviously. Um, you know, and they're from the Eastern states, I think, centered around Atlanta, Georgia, that kind of stuff, um, but also across into Asia and to Europe. So I was the general manager of this plant at the time, and they 
suggested we should find somebody. So me, I put my hand up and I said, I'd, I'd love to do that. So that, that led me onto a, a yellow, green and black belt with GE. Uh, and it took me six years. Um, it, was, it was a bit of an effort. But at, in the same time, we created two really great projects that made a significant difference to the plant. And, and up until that time, I was always excited about doing uh, activities with, with frontline people to achieve the results. But I really didn't know perhaps the methodologies and I really didn't know the tools. But I actually came across with this um, training that was just there was some really great stuff. And one of the projects, um, one of the black belt projects we implemented over this period of time was to reduce the lead time of cables from eight weeks to two weeks. And this was particularly fiber optic cable. And um, there was a lot of competition in the market with, with uh, technology, with price, but the real lever was, um, was lead time. So there was a fantastic opportunity to implement this project. And the end result was we did actually end up um, consistently getting down to a two-week lead time, which then allowed the, the sales team to actually go in with a more competitive advantage. And, and the great thing was, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily me doing it, I was facilitating it, but the great thing was we had a real great engagement with a lot of people in the plant. And they were just like, because they knew, you know, typically frontline people know the problems, right? They know the pain that's causing the organisation um, and unfortunately, I think a couple of things that they that that people don't find easy is that one is people uh, maybe not they're not listened to or engaged, and secondly, um, they don't have the the tools. So one of the things that was really exciting to was deliver this project, and kind of that then set me on this course to do more formal CI. And and in the last twelve years, I've had. Uh, four roles where I've been, you know, national or senior lead for uh, continuous improvement. And, and all those organisations, apart from um, Australia Post where I am now, uh, all those organisations was from um, a zero start or greenfield. So it was like, okay, we, we go into this organisation and how do we start the program? With, in mind, keeping the frontline people engaged right from the very beginning. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your uh, background with our audience out there. And of course, we'll be sharing your uh, LinkedIn link down below, et cetera. So uh, folks can start to see um, some of what you post. So we have uh, just a handful of folks that, uh, you know, as I'm online, um, you know, really marketing for my business, um, there's only a handful of folks that I feel like create real value. And I look up their posts kind of intentionally every day. And, and you're one of them. Uh, I love seeing the engagement and, you know, the application of lean principles to help the people doing the work. Um, and I know that that gets results from personal experience. Um, and so we're really excited to emphasize that side of the business because in my estimation, the technical side of industrial engineering and lean and operations management, um, you know, that's not a secret anymore. We have the internet, we have 
not just books, but I can read most books on the internet. I can order them and have them show up at my door overnight. I don't know if Jeff Bezos has invaded Australia yet, but where where we live, um, I can get that book the next day. Um, the knowledge is out there. And I think the competitive advantage and differentiator for operational excellence and continuous improvement in the 21st century is going to be the people focus and the culture and how the company really interfaces with themselves and the people doing the work, right? Definitely. And, and can I add to, just to add to that, John, that um, I totally agree that it's the application is the key. Um, now, it's interesting on my journey, because I started, I had a number of years with Nestle, um, great operational excellence platform, uh, but very dogmatic. This is the way you do it. And, and it needed pretty a large workforce, a lot of, a lot of people, and a lot of people uh, who hadn't experienced Lean. So it was very kind of, not, not, um, not highly dogmatic, but a very specific guideline on how to do it. Uh, but over the years, I've been a lot more pragmatic. And it's because that, you know, we want things to sustain. And I think one of the challenges that we have, uh, and I suspect it's the same in North America, but in Australia, we have a challenge where we have uh, consultants, and I, and I like to call them external resources. They, they, they come in very knowledgeable, very experienced with application, but they come in and it's, it's almost like they're, they're ticking the box for the CEO or the MD. And so what happens is they're, they're implementing some tools, but unfortunately, it's, they're not engaging. And obviously, this is a generalisation, but you know sometimes they're not engaging the front line. So what the front line do is the front line are disconnected. And so it's... It, because I, I really believe, and um, you know, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I really believe that that lean has got to be, you know, eighty percent bottom up and twenty percent top down. So you, you've got to have the the CEO and the MD and the senior management team on board, and and they've got to be um, they've got to be on board with the whole program, but they're not the ones to drive it. Let me zoom into that a little bit. First off, my heart sank the other day when you tagged me in a post about a communication board with the team, uh, actually solving problems by making it visual in front of everybody. And if you recall, I don't know whether you actually do or not, my comment was about forget what everyone else says about how to change this and just be happy you did it and engaged with them because that is so much more important than working through the perfect tool, the right tool, the next thing. And if you notice, like my general feel from specifically on the social media is the people who brand themselves as consultants, they are those CEO managing director box tickers. That's what they're there to do, to have a exhaustive tool that just looks good and supports a shareholder stakeholder and stakeholder in some shape or form. And I love that you are physically right there, you're in it, and then you tagged me in it. So that really made me fall in love with you. So well done. Well, it's interesting. I, 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 can't, I can't profess to be a social media expert. Uh, I do have a Facebook and Instagram account, but I haven't used them for years, years. But interesting, um, I'm starting to learn because I've up, upgraded my uh, frequency of posting, as you, as you can tell. I've, I've done uh, a lot more frequent posts 
And there are comments that uh, I kind of just disregard because I kind of self-reflect and think, you know, um, where is the comment coming from? You know, where is, is the comment related to what I've said or related to where that person is in their situation? And, and sometimes I just got to uh, not, not disregard it, but just kind of, well, um, let the, let the um, conversation flow through. And one of the things that, that because I've increased my frequency in, in LinkedIn, I have probably 10 to 12 messages a day on people asking for things, you know. And, and the bulk of them are really people who don't know what they're asking for. They're just kind of asking a general question. Like I got a message this morning saying that um, I, need, I need some, um, some tools to implement 5, 5S. And I'm thinking, okay, that's that's good. I can share a package of what I've done before. So I messaged back saying, yeah, I've got that. And then the reply was, uh, in particular, the cost savings that can be benefited from 5S in, um, in implementation. And I'm thinking... <laughs> and I'm thinking it's a great question, but how do you answer that? And, and certainly for me, I never want to be at all uh, disrespectful. I never want to be uh, pushing people off. So I spend a lot of time actually trying to understand what people are looking for because really my 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 vision is to help people. You know, if I've learned something um, that I want to share, um, if if I've found a better way of doing something, um, people may not agree. That's cool, but I want to share that because you might find that people have the same challenge and we're talking about you know there might be millions of people in the world that have that work in the same space but if if i can share something that makes their job easier and i've learned over the years that what they can do then is then there it's it's almost like a pay forward process then they can pay that forward to others and the next thing you know that we're actually working in a better space we're growing that pie for everybody and not taking a larger slice for ourselves yeah yeah and as the pie gets larger my slice gets larger as well. Um, the reason that uh, Jake and I had that reaction, you know, to that story is we know exactly what's going on. We've been in that guy's shoes where as a continuous improvement professional, you know, on a W-2 working for a company, you're trying to implement tools that you know can make the business better. But the C-suite or business management over here they have a different set of priorities and values. And I can't tell you how many times I had something that should have been a just do it. And the response from management was great. Well, fill out a, uh, you know, this form. That A3, here's your A3, the punishment A3. No, not, not a punishment A3, but, but pretty close, right? Like it justify, you know, like how much savings you can have from this. And of course, most of the time, <clears throat> anything that you throw into that document is garbage. You know, you're, you're just making it up to fill out the paperwork so you can move forward. You can't calculate that. No one can calculate that, right? Um, but specifically, it, de it definitely depends on the market sector, right? What kind of business you're in. But for businesses that sell services, I'm thinking third-party logistics in particular, they're asking for this because they want to sell. They want to market to future partners. Hey, guess yeah. what? We've got this guy over here working for this 
world-renowned international manufacturer, largely considered best in class globally. And they came up with this project and here's how much money they saved and we can do that for you too, right? That, yeah. That's why they're asking for that. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm in that seat, I just try to come to terms with, well, wait a minute, what pressure pressures are they feeling? What are they trying to accomplish here? And, you know, usually we can, we can make it work. But it, it does highlight the challenges when uh, different silos in the business, um, as well as individuals, but oftentimes it's whole segments of the company are kind of pulling in different directions, kind of have different uh, different values. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, it, it's all related to uh, motivation, motivating forces and factors, but, but sometimes it's tied directly to compensation. So I worked with a company that was ostensibly lean and proud of it and had a lean business operating system. But the CEO, all the C-suite members were compensated on the basis of share performance. And at the end of every quarter, lean went out the window for about two weeks, produce as much as you can. Inventory counts as an asset. We can balance our books over here, blah, blah, blah. Cost accounting, you know, completely at odds with everything they were preaching you know, the rest of the year. Um, but that was the forces, that was the dynamics. So yeah. speaking of forces and dynamics and motivation and all of that, frontline engagement, we want to change. We can't change without the people doing the work, doing things differently, right? And for, for whatever reason, that is just hard as a person, right? It's yeah. hard for me, right? Yeah. So I'm married. Um, Jake, Paul, I don't know if you are, but um, so for folks that are married, right, we know what this is like, because all of a sudden there's another human in our life who's like, you know what, when you leave your dirty clothes in the middle of the living room floor, that's, that's really disrespectful, and you need to put it in the laundry basket. I just want to clarify, John and I aren't married, we're married separately. <laughs> Not to each other, yeah, right, we, we both have wives, um, Although, uh, anyway, so, but <laughs> I've been using my living room floor as a laundry basket, you know, as a bachelor forever. What's wrong with that? I mean, it's visual management. It's right there, you know? And then next thing you know, you're yeah. rolling out all of your, you know, training and industrial engineering and everything else <laughs> to justify keeping your laundry in the middle of the living room floor, right? Change is yeah. just hard. It's just hard yeah. for people. John and I had a one hour conversation about the laundry basket scenario and how we're going to balance the whip between the frequency of washes. <laughs> and you, and you've got to be pragmatic about it, Jake. You can't be, you can't be that, that CI uh, industrial performance person. You've got to be pragmatic about it. But, but I, I, I like what you guys were saying. And one of the things that, that, I kind of like to think a little differently. So, so you want the people in the organisation to follow, right? And and you you're the facilitator, you're the lead. But but you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to get people to to lead. Now maybe they don't know where they're going, but if if you give them the space to lead, you know, so there's a whole lot of um, behavioural aspects that. There's respect for people. There's there's empowerment. There's listening. All those kind of things. I really think if you 
if we adopt the mindset, and this this is definitely a paradigm shift, right? So in the past, we used to uh, we used to want to lead and guide people, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, I think there should be a paradigm shift where instead of we actually we're we're pulling them along, that they pull us along, and that's why I'm very passionate about you know the at, at the moment, and it's not the only thing that that I do, but I've just like fixated, I guess, unfortunately, I'm fixated on it. It's like the the T1, T2 daily management meetings because that's where, that's really where the magic happens. Now, does it have to be um, perfect? No. And and sometimes, um, you know, I, I, all the stuff that I share on LinkedIn is actually stuff that I've done myself, right? I don't, I don't take anything or I don't doctor anything up or I don't shatter stock photos or things like that, right? So it's just raw, right? Although I do blank out the businesses because that's that's the, the appropriate thing to do. Um, but interesting that if I if I share something, I'll get comments that are actually critical about what I've done. And I think, well, yeah, but you don't see the engagement. You don't see the people taking something to a new direction. And sometimes you have to stand back and you have to go, oh, that's magic. Like, like even recently, where I, the work that I'm doing at the moment, there was a there was a situation that we coached a team into, and they actually came they came up with their different approach, and it was really just a five S uh, activity, but they came up with a different approach, and and I just stood back and I thought, uh, this is magic, and 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 I'm I'm sure you guys feel the same thing that when that happens, it's like you feel a proud parent kind of thing. You, you, you've taught the kid to do something, but the kid's gone on to do something else, you know? So I, I don't know how that works. Sorry, not the parenting thing. I, well, actually, the parenting. You have a good idea how parenting works. We have that pretty well dialed in. But I will say, I do think that you do not facilitate process improvement. You give birth to it because after which it is your baby. You are constantly like in awe. You're irrationally talking about it. You think it's better than it actually is more than likely. <laughs> and we love it inherently. But Jake, in that, there are labor pains. And sometimes, yep. you know, if we want to, if we want to use the analogy, and and I, because of my male, I really don't know what what you know my wife went through in giving birth. So you do know about how parenting works. Because I kind of I kind of understand it, but interesting, there are birthing pains. You know, when's this baby going to come? Is going to come on time? Do we really know what the date is? So you know, is is this going to be launched on time? Would we think? You know, the 38 weeks and the calendar and all that stuff, that's when it's supposed to get launched. But is actually getting launched on time? Can it come premature? Sure. But when it when when the team wants to launch it early, you go, well, hang on, is it going to survive because it's premature? But then sometimes the baby comes out and it's actually um, the full 38 weeks or whatever it is, right? And you think, well, maybe, maybe the the gestation of the thinking was actually um profitable so you know do we really need to hold this baby back because we think as obstetricians we think that this baby's got to be born at a certain time because beforehand it's got a less of a uh, opportunity to survive but then we go okay well let's let's give it a go and we'll we'll put all our resources resources in to make sure that once it's birthed it actually works really well and and even that and sometimes the opposite occurs when you go, well, hang on, no, we're not ready, not ready, not ready. 
And then what happens is we actually lose momentum and then, then there's maybe even a bigger risk. And I'm not medically uh, trained or anything, but I think that maybe if a baby's born early, it's probably better off than if it's born really late, you know? So in sometimes when you've got to cook, cook a, a process, that actually you've got to be mindful of who's giving birth to this methodology and is it going to be, you know, on time and is it going to be healthy? I feel like we could write a whole book on nursery lean now. Like that, that just we could just dive into that with the rest of like and analogous to everything. Like really well said there. Interesting enough, I I I like and and John, you and I had a chat a couple of times, but I I like to find analogies because you know being more pragmatic, we've got to find a way. Um, and this kind of goes back to a point that you guys made before. Sometimes you've got to find a way of explaining something. Um, even if it's not perfect, and use whatever resources or examples you can to explain something because, you know, I, I might know in my own mind that what it looks like and what it could look like, but I'm trying to share that vision with others who have no idea, you know, respectfully have never seen it before. So sometimes you have to find a whole lot of different ways, and that's why I love um, even recently with 5S, um, we're embarking on a 5S program but, you know, I, I've got the reins and I'm pulling back the reins a little bit saying, well, let's create a pilot and let's cook that pilot and then the rest of the people in the facility can come and have a look at what how it works and then you can kind of work better. And I suspect that a lot of people do this, but it's almost like pulling the reins and saying to the senior, senior leadership, well, hang on, you know, if we want this to sustain, we need to bring the people along in the journey. Otherwise, what will happen is... It'll all look like 5S, but unfortunately, it'll all fall over. Yeah, great point. Um, I, I think it's so profound. You know, you mentioned, uh, I guess, kind of our default mindset is, you know, we want people to follow. Like, I'm supposed to be implementing change and continuous improvement. You know, follow me. Let's get it done. Here's your shadow board. Do it, John. Yeah. <laughs> what if we could turn that around and you're leading? Right. And that's the ultimate goal. Right. That's the giving birth to the baby analogy. Um, I had a similar post a couple of weeks ago. Now, I didn't get any critical comments, but that's just because I don't have the same following that you do online. You know, if I did, I'm sure I would get get plenty. But I had a um, fella who asked for a whiteboard for his area. OK, sure. Yeah. In fact, I, I have a spare one. Uh, what's it for? He wanted to track everything that was hindering flow in his area. His, the cogs were turning. He was starting to understand this concept of flow and value add versus non-value add. And he wanted to start tracking them to see what we could do differently to eliminate them. I thought, this is amazing. Like this guy is basically asking for a tier one board for his area uh, on his own. Now, I'm doing this intentionally in this environment that I'm talking about where I'm trying to educate the team on lean principles and have them come up with the solution. And I'm only guiding them, you know, as much as possible, um, you know, to, to keep them from going astray, so to speak. Um, but I want them to develop the tools because the comprehension and ownership will be so much higher. And yeah. I can go to any team and say, here is a SQDC board, fill it out, use it this way. Here's the training. 
And how effective is that? Now compare that to, I'm going to teach you the principles, right, of continuous improvement of Kaizen. I'm going to instill that mindset, help you to grow that mindset. And then the, you come up with a solution. And the solution they come up with is probably going to be really close to an SQDC board. And it will be close enough that you can coach them into that. So some companies that I've worked with have like an operating system with pre-designed branded materials. So you just go online, you know, click the company link and you can buy the SQDC board, has the company branding and logo on it already. Great. Um, and it really helps to have um, similar marketing and visuals in different, you know, companies that have multi sites, uh, understand that. But do you really just want to buy it and then roll it out and say, okay, guys, use this? Or do you want them to come up with the solution? At which point you can say, I love that. Do you know, we act, we have a tool, I think that'll work. It's pretty close, right? And, and then, then you and roll then it you, out. And then you come together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's just like kissing. Like they give you 80% and you give the other 20. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole. That's the whole thing about. I think about respecting people. Um, now, now, when you, when John, when you talked about that example, that that makes me anxious, right? Because I'm thinking I want to give. And to be honest with you, it kind of makes me anxious. But I kind of overcome the anxiety with knowing what the future would look like and the benefits. But it, the interesting thing is that when somebody comes to me, like in that example, with with that passion. You know, I've got the anxiety that what is it going to eventually look like and is it going to fit in where we want to go? And is there a lot of meandering around to get to the end point without losing the engagement of the people? So that, that's a tricky thing. And I've encountered that over the years, not, not a lot, but I've seen it before where, you know, someone has, you know, seen something or, or in, in a lot of cases done it elsewhere and they've come to the organisation and we were introducing something like, um, you know, there's methodology 30-30-30. And I don't know if you've heard of it, where you come up with 30 ideas uh, in 30 minutes um, with 30 people, right? And it's really just a, a brainstorming Kaizen activity, right? But you got people, then there was one occasion I coached this team and set out, framed it all up, everyone. But there was one guy in it who said, oh, no, we've done that in the past and we've done it like this. And he was quite vocal in the team. I'm thinking, oh, my God, because what happens is they're all thinking, well, hang on, he, we know him. He's just new. He's worked here for a couple of months and we'll follow him. So in that, in that occasion, I had to go, uh, yeah, okay, okay. Well, let's, and there's no time to talk and, and pre-plan this. And we just had to run with it. And then you just, I guess, as the, as the coach, you have to see what the vision is in, in the future and you're going to, constantly have to recalibrate and 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 slightly slightly you know redirect the the path, the journey so they get to the point and i and i like to use the analogy of uh of sailing and i'm not a sailor but you know jake you said before that there's lots of books that you know you can get from amazon and all that kind of stuff which is good and i imagine the same thing for sailing but i think most of the um experience and most of the uh joy out of sailing comes from people applying the basic principles and learning as they go and maybe learning from their colleagues. So then 
a trip from one point to another on a sailboat um, is totally different for everybody, but you're still going from point A to point B. But it's about when you come up with, uh, you know, different headwinds or when the tide is different and you've got reefs or those kind of things, you know, what do you do? So I think the, the, the real trick for a coach is actually to understand where we want to go and understand maybe there's a different way to getting there and be pragmatic enough not to de- be disrespectful to the tool, so not actually, you know, change the way you're doing things, but uh, actually then looking at uh, is there another way of uh, getting there by respecting the person? Yeah, begin with the end in mind, right, John? Yeah. No, I, I really love the sailing analogy. And, Paul, we had talked about this before. Um, and this reminds me, Jake, of our conversation with Sean, because we were talking about the same thing of like the cookie cutter approach. And, you know, it, it's to use the sailing analogy. It's as if sometimes it's as if uh, somebody reads a book that says, here's how you draw the anchor and here's how you set the sails and here's how you sail. And they're doing those things and they don't realize. Now, wait a minute. You know, first of all, we're, let's assume that we're sailing a sloop because, you know, single mast, one person can can sail it, or two, um, if you're gonna, um, you know, adjust the jib separately. So a two-person sloop, right? So you, so you're out here sailing, but the wind has changed directions. In the book, the wind was dead astern. You know, it's assuming like perfect scenario, and in the book, it's a sandy bottom uh, river, you know, with a, a spade anchor that you can just pull up, right? Uh, but your river has a bunch of rocks in it and you have a claw anchor. Um, And then, you know, you get over here and there's a cross current that wasn't in the book. Right. But I did everything in the book. How come I'm crashed on the reef? Well, because you have to understand the theory and apply the right tool and methodology, depending on the independent circumstances. Right. So, you know, running before the wind is a lot different from tacking into the wind. Right. By the way, it's slower. Uh, for non-sailors. Have you ever seen the movie Castaway? It was about John, like just so we know. (laughs) It was about John. Sailing into the wind, at least on a a, a sloop or a non-square rigged uh, sailboat is much faster than running before the wind, which makes sense if you think about the physics and the surface area of the sails. But anyway, so I love the sailing analogy. All right, so enough about sailing. I'm going to shout out to uh, Mudhook in uh, DeSoto, Texas. I've got my slightly modified uh, mud hook hoodie on that I modified so I could work out in it. Um, Brian, great job down there in uh, DeSoto. The best burger. Best burger in Texas. The best burger. And that's saying something because they got hella burgers in Texas. Um, A little bit about Brian when uh, COVID happened and things were shut down and people were starting to panic, you know, right there in the the beginning, he got with his food supplier, his restaurant food supplier, and bought a bunch of food and then resold it and gave it away to some people that couldn't afford it out of his restaurant. His restaurant was closed due to COVID. The food suppliers were struggling for income um, and the supermarkets were bare. And so he did his part uh, in the community and uh, just a great guy. Like that's the kind of guy he is. They also have the best burger in Texas. So uh, free uh, 
shout out to Mudhook and the clothes are awesome too. And they sell drinks and John always has to walk up and get the most complicated drink ever. <laughs> that, that's like he can't he can't order something normal you'd see and you he walks up and he's like, One Godfather, please. And if you don't know what that is, Google it. That's how he, he spends his time. Uh, but Godfather was named after Marlon Brando, who played the Godfather because it's what he would drink on the set. And it's actually pretty good if you like sweet mixed drinks. It's actually pretty. Well, I love what you're saying, John, because can I just add to what you're saying that, you know, it, it, and it applies really to lean as well, but generosity comes from, doesn't come from abundance. Generosity comes from within the heart. So if we, if we as lean practitioners want to lead people along the journey, it really comes from the right heart attitude. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are well equipped at what we're doing, that we are, we've got plenty of time, but it's about um, being generous with, with not just the actions, but being generous with the words. And that's where, um, you know, just my, my philosophy, that's where I think the whole TPS system has been so valuable. It's not necessarily around the tools, it's around the culture. It's around the people. It's around how the people are looked after and how the people are respected in, in their voice. You know, the whole story, like I've got behind me this automotive plant, right? And, and actually, as you probably know, that I'm not in the plant because I don't have PPE, right? But if I was in this plant, I'd have PPE and I'd have glasses there, I mean, maybe even a hard hat. But the interesting thing is with automotive lines, that the individual uh, frontline person has the ability to stop the line. Now, that, that's for a lot of reasons, but the message it sends to me is that people are respected enough to have the empowerment to do that. And I think that's where, in some cases, we've, we've kind of lost a little of the journey in implementing lean because we're interested in ticking the box, getting the savings, appeasing the CEO and MD, which are all, all very important, but we do collateral damage with the people by not bringing them along the journey. So it's it's about guiding people. Now, it may take a little longer, but it's going to be more sustainable because I've, over the years, even, even prior to my specific formal lean training, as I was plant manager, I would constantly get people, when I asked them the question, you know, what can we do to fix it? I constantly got the answer, well, no one listens to me and I've said this before, but not, nothing happens. And, and I feel so, uh, you know, painful because of that because I'm thinking it's not necessarily adopting all the ideas that someone says because you can't, but giving them feedback, the reason why, to give them feedback. And that's why I'm also passionate in making sure that, that we look after the frontline people and we communicate well with them. And I think one of the challenges, particularly in Australia, we have is the leaders of those frontline teams. So whether you call it a supervisor or a superintendent, whichever industry you come from, I find those people who, who are leaders of the frontline, they don't have the time um, to devote to giving feedback to the frontline because they're squeezed from the top and from the lack of support from the bottom. So what happens is that they... They're just too busy doing the job, making sure their output is right, because obviously they've got to satisfy their, their leaders. 
That is not unique to Australia, let me tell you. Like the frontline supervisor is the most undervalued resource and I've ever seen or had a part of. I, I'm even in a boat. I don't know if I'm alone in this boat or not, but I think the frontline supervisor is more critical than any other role in an organization. Yeah, we well, had this discussion about the upside down pyramid and you know who's who's more valuable, the GM or the supervisor? Well, that's interesting because you, if, if that's kind of brings a lot of anxiety because the conversation is how do you how do you talk about that? But I, I went through uh, a number of years ago. I went through a program where we looked at um, we looked at, and this was a great methodology. I won't I won't say which company, but it was a global large global organisation that I worked for, and they went through this methodology: is let's look at the supervisors. Um, value add. So it almost did a combination of DISC, SWAT, 5S on the time that the supervisors have. And let's try and drive out the wasted time to make their time more valuable. We don't want them to work in the process. We want them to work on the process. And so not in the business to work on the business. In their little, little environment, what can they do to influence? Now, a lot of organisations have have focused on the leadership aspect, which is great, and I absolutely applaud that. But all you're doing is you're training a supervisor to think differently and to do things differently, and all it's adding is to their their baggage. They've got so much to do, and these guys are typically either really passionate, sorry, guys and girls, are really passionate about what they do to the point they've probably been promoted from their team so, and they, and they probably have got uh, a really good opportunity for a career path to move further up. So they want to do the right thing. They're passionate. They wear the company on their sleeve. You know, they say everything right. They don't, they don't do the wrong thing. But we're actually overloading them with extra, extra things, not necessarily to do, but to think about. So one of the things that, that I've found of value is leader standard work. So this is where... The supervisor becomes the checker of the checks. The supervisor doesn't do the checks. The supervisor empowers their team to actually do the, the checks. And then the supervisor comes back over and how do we improve the system, whether it's 5S, whether it's quality checks or safety checks, whatever it might be. And, and I think that's quite valuable if we can kind of start to think that way because if we do that, then perhaps that supervisor is going to be a better leader with their team because they can think more clearly. Uh, and then because they think more clearly and be a better leader, does then means the team will come quick along the journey with them. Yeah. So this is John's book, page 13. This is where he highlights the, the mission critical portion of a leader standard work and even provides the tool right in the middle of the book. Well, thanks so, for the as a special place in my chase. heart, of course. As yeah, Paul, a special place that. in my heart. And I especially appreciate the example of the Andon core. Um, it reminds me of, I believe it was Marshall McLuhan. Uh, he was a psychologist from uh, French Canada, I believe. And he came up with a, a pretty famous uh, idea the medium is the message. 
and probably an, an easy application to understand would be rock and roll, right? So the lyrics of of uh, like a, a Kiss song, for example, I'm sure in Australia, you all know Gene Simmons and the, the gang, right? So the, the lyrics like, I'm back in the New York groove, really doesn't mean the same thing as when it's being sung on the stage by these four guys in makeup and long hair, or maybe their wigs, whatever, you know, with the fireworks going off and, and all of that, it means something totally different than if an artist like Jewel were singing it, you know, sitting on a stool in a hipster coffee shop strumming a guitar, right? The medium is the message. And I think in North America, the Andon was fundamentally misunderstood as, okay, we just decided we're going to stop production to fix, pro fix problems in real time. Okay, well, I guess we can do that. Well, yes, that's what's happening, but that's not actually the thing. The Here's your thing ping pong is, table in the break room. We have a good culture now. Yeah, <laughs> the thing is the person doing the work pulls the andon cord, right? That medium is a powerful message to the entire organization. You're the expert, you are a professional car manufacturer and we expect you to have the knowledge and capability and frankly courage to pull that cord and stop the line when something's not right well with great power comes great responsibility yeah well if you miss the message there like as a leader um you're not going to get the same results right yeah um, the the purpose is not just to fix problems in real time. There's a lot of ways you can do that, right? Yeah. Why the Andon cable? Because yeah. of the culture that it creates, the message that it sends to the entire organization. And, and that and goes back. Yeah, and the yeah. empowerment for the front line. I actually, with that example that I had before about looking at the supervisor and the, the hours of value add um, that they contributed to their customer, and I'd love to talk about customer because that's that's really underrated. But interesting, with this organisation, we developed a methodology called Check Act, the Check Act routine. So it's really straight out of PDCA. So we're assuming, and, and, and I'm sure you guys would have lived this, but at the time we developed this routine, which was a leader standard work routine, but called the Check Act routine. And what, what we would do is we would go to the supervisor and we would ask the supervisor or the supervisor would go to their team members and they would do the leader standard work check. But it was, it was almost like a gimbal walk. It was actually not just checking that things were done, but it was also checking the behaviour of the person and supporting that person. And that was so powerful because it was the introduction of leader standard work, but it was almost like sustaining um, the good work that's been started. John talks a lot about that and why I fell in love with this here. Like he's just a, a, a soft space in my heart. Maybe I'm too much of a fan. And uh, now I just fangirl over it from time to time. <laughs> so, so just very quickly about the customer. Um, I, I, and this is something that I'm, I'm been thinking of lately in the last maybe six months or so, that we don't talk about the customer as much as we should. So 
it's it's a conversation that really is the heart of the lean, but it's something that we don't necessarily talk about. So doing, doing lean training, which I do a lot of lean training internally at the moment, I start with, you know, um, the customer and value to the customer. And it's interesting, and, and I think it's the same over the years, that, that people don't necessarily get it. They don't necessarily understand, well, hang on, why are we talking about the customer? Because really, if we understand the customer and what the customer is saying, not what we think they're saying, then we can actually tune our process to be more in sync with what the customer wants. And the customer's biggest challenge is to be disappointed about their expectation. So they're not, I personally, I don't think customers are really, they really want a price perspective. They, they want, and maybe not even a quality perspective, but they don't want to be disappointed. They have an expectation, whether it's verbal or whether it's clearly articulated, they have an expectation and the expectation is, is, is let down. Yeah, and it's often not even related to what they say, feel, or give feedback on. So it's a very subjective process. Like I will go back to, you know, the analogy of being married is I've got a customer there in this business of marriage that will constantly give feedback that is not related to what they actually want. <laughs> and me trying to solve for that is a calculus equation I'm not prepared for. But the thing to do is try. But interesting, we, we as guys are not very different to organisations. So the customer is doing the customer is doing this, right? And we compartmentalising what we think they say, and then we're doing something differently, right? Absolutely. But but I think the key the key is not necessarily the external customer who's very much out of reach. It's it's the internal customer. It's it's the whole understanding of what I'm doing for the next person along the supply chain. And, and, and I think that's valuable. And that's where I'm starting to think lately is that person is, I might have lunch with them in a break. I might actually, um, they might be a close friend. And particularly in North America, where you have a lot of big plants that do have um, family members, you know, it's a little bit, a little bit less than that in Australia because the smaller plants and, and, you know, geographically spread, but if you're working with your family member, right, uh, or the family member is in the same plant, what you want to do is you want to understand what can I do, and, and this is where the generosity comes in, what can I do to satisfy them? Because I'm hoping that they're going to pay it forward. So they then um, look at ways to satisfy what they do. So then the challenge comes is I'm not going to run um, my rate a million miles an hour and log jam the next process because that's not going to help. But if I yeah, can... the one sentence I keep on that before I let you continue that just rattles in my brain is how and to whom do I create the most possible value? And that's something I coined from John. Yeah, that's good. But but interesting, Jake. It's it's you've got to start with that conversation. You know what what do we do? Because everything we do in Lean is 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 about value. Are we really doing the things that the customer wants or are we doing the things that we think the customer wants and therefore disappointing the customer? For example, like a lot of organisations love DIFOT, right? But I, I don't focus on DIFOT mainly because, you know, there's a whole lot of moving parts that can achieve the number, right? But let's look at the contributors to the DIFOT. Let's focus on the contributors 
because they might be a little bit harder to understand, but they're actually more personable. So what can I do that contributes eventually to die fight? And if I do my task well, then I can be confident when I get in the car on the way home or when I'm walking and leave, walking out the gate, that I'm confident that I've done a good job because I've achieved what I think is important to the customer. Yeah, and I love the emphasis on sphere of influence. You know, for everybody in the organization, I might not really be uh, involved at all in the marketing channel, right? From sort of HQ to the end consumer, but I do have a customer and there's a really good chance that customer is in close physical proximity or close enough that I can have an actual relationship with that person. And if everybody in the organization were focused on building that relationship with the next person, how much better could we do? We can communicate so much more clearly. Um, I'm thinking in particular of these um, surveys. You know, I'll be on the phone with the bank or whatever, and they'll be like, if you would like to participate in a survey, please stay on the line, you know? Okay, so I stay on the line and the first- Do they have that in Australia? Can I, they do? Okay. They they actually do tell you before you actually answer the questions, Hey, by the way, at the end of this, end of the call, there'll be a survey. We'd like you to fill that out. Right, right. So, you know, the first question is, uh, uh, how helpful was the person you talked to on the phone? You know, on a, a scale of zero to five or something. I'm like, wait a minute, time out. You're telling me how to think about my experience and what I'm allowed to communicate back to you. The person on the other end of the phone call was reading out of the damn book you gave them, you know, following the decision tree. Oh, he said this, turn to page 14, you know, like it's a Dungeons and Dragons game or something like that. You know, they they did fine. That wasn't the issue. The issue is that you have complicated processes that nobody really understands and you don't know how to service the product that you sold me. Right. That's the issue. But you're pre-decided automated survey can never get at that problem. And we do that as companies quite a bit. We, we're just deaf to the customer and the customer's feedback because we've already decided what we're gonna listen to and what the problems are, you know, what we're not gonna listen to. And sometimes I think we do that internally as well, right? Where we make assumptions, we don't talk to people um, and uh, sort of interpret our experiences based on subconscious um, biases and experiences and so on without ever bringing it to the front of our mind and saying, now, wait a minute, that person's not me. They're not in my work environment. They don't do the same job. I'm, re- I'm really making a lot of assumptions here. And it's, it's not, it's rarely negative. It's just how we are as people. So mm. I'm in the uh, fabrication shop and this guy's in assembly. That's my customer. I'm making these parts, I'm literally making them out of metal and I'm sending them to that side of the building to assemble. Now, as a fab worker, I'm concerned about the availability of raw materials, the velocity of scrap uh, leaving the area because I can't work You know, when the shavings and stuff build up. Um, I'm concerned about the oil and the, the metal and the... Uh, gauge R&R for my tooling. Is there new tooling available? Can I swap it out, right? And so I'm bringing those assumptions on this um, 
assembly guy who's my customer. And I'm just assuming they work in the same factory for the same company and they must have the same concerns, right? Yeah, and, and they'll be okay with whatever you produce. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, that's not you know anything like negative or malicious on my part. It's just kind of how we are as people. Um, but maybe we need to take the time to just step back for a minute, you know, and say, you know what, I should go talk to this person for this team and uh, find, you know, get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. You know, what, what really does matter to you the most with this, the stuff I'm producing, you're getting it eventually. What's good, what's bad, what can I improve on? And if you run a company and you're listening to John's speech here, you have to give people the space to actually do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jack, I think I'd, I'd like to go one step further. A lot of organisations do move people around within a plant for experience, for training, but I don't think we're talking about that. I, I think we're talking about understanding the connection between the two teams and understanding what the quality uh, expectation is or what the, the performance expectation is. And that way we're, we're actually understanding what we do affects the further down the customer. Can I, can I just, um, I like what you're saying about sphere of influence. I spent, I spent a few months in North America at uh, various plants and, and these were regional plants, you know, places like um, in Pennsylvania, like uh, Pottsville or, or in uh, Alabama, like Carrollton. And the interesting thing that I found, I, I met one operator, and I, and I kind of, I kind of love when this happens. I met this operator, and this operator in in a plant that was kind of semi lean and going through the journey. And this person talked about a nine foot circle, right now. Now I, I hadn't heard the terminology before, and I thought, okay, tell me what the nine foot circle is. And this person worked on this assembly line, quite a large assembly line. And within the nine foot, that was their sphere of influence. But within that, encroaching on that nine foot was both uh, other, op you know, was other operators and supervisors. Then I started to challenge the, the concept. I said, okay, if you, you, you kind of want everything within your nine foot circle. So you don't have to want to go somewhere further and waste time. So you want everything within reach. So controls, documentation, materials, everything within nine foot. But I said, so what happens to, you know, you, you, if you've got three people on the line, right, the, the line is not 27 foot long, right? So there's an overlap between you and other people. So how does that work? And this woman said to me the same thing she said. She said, well, you know, we're all talking about resources. We're talking about um, materials, time, paperwork, controls of the machine. We're also talking about people. So... That person then also has the opportunity to be within my nine-foot circle and vice versa. So whatever they're looking for and whatever I'm looking for is the overlap, is the agreement. And so I started thinking, well, what? how does this really play out? And this woman was saying to me, um, and this is, not a, um, this is not a lean plant that was mature, that was still going through a lot of the journey, but they developed some really good stuff. But this person was saying to me that, well, that's, you know, if the person is down the outward end of the machine, they're my customer. And the person on the upstream end of the machine is my supplier. And I have the connection with those people within my sphere of influence. And she said, if we have a machine that has got, you know, maybe 10 people in it, then there's a 90-foot circle of influence or 90-foot 
um, sphere of influence and that or circle of influence. And then that way we can then interact with other people because really in a plant that big, you still have an overlap. 90 foot between machines is, is quite large. So, uh, but still still achievable within uh, influencing the customer. And, and that methodology, I encourage that person to, and, and not necessarily write it down, but videotape the conversation. So let's have the conversation again. Let me ask the stupid questions because I'm really good at that. And you answer it the way you feel and let's capture that and let's share that. And, and, and almost, I wouldn't say it went viral, but going to the other plant managers, they saw the passion and interest from this person and they said, we need to add this to the playbook, you know, and it was so valuable. That's amazing. Paul, what a great story. Um, we appreciate you sharing that. I think that is a fantastic spot to wrap the episode up on. We really appreciate you joining us all the way from the land down under. Paul, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, how can folks get in touch with you? Well, certainly on LinkedIn, if you want to either direct message me or connect with me on LinkedIn, happy to do that. Um, and then I can share with them my YouTube channel, which has got, uh, I've been a bit slow at the moment, but there's 60 something videos that I've created about um, different methodology. So yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn and then I'll share with you the resources that I've got. Yeah, awesome. And we'll put the links uh, down below in the video description so folks can uh, touch base. And I uh, would just like to say thank you for the, the real value you create out there in cyberspace. The videos are awesome. Your LinkedIn content is awesome and encouraging. Um, so thanks very much. And thanks for joining us. Paul Dean, everybody out there in YouTube land, have a good week. Paul Dean. Thank you, guys.